From RTE News, this is States of Mind. Donald, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. Little Buddha touch, Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie. Mini Mike. I hit Pocahontas way too early. We have a president who is not only a pathological liar. We have a criminal living in the White House. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Let's just pick somebody, please, and let's start this thing. Let's start it. Pick somebody. Your U.S. Election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the Tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged. The Joe Biden of yesterday is not the Joe Biden of today. It must be difficult to be a Republican woman who also criticizes Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the Republican Party, especially now, is controlled by a bunch of middle-aged white men. Well, here we are in 2020, the previous decade, full of watershed moments for women. The fourth wave of feminism, the rise of the Me Too movement, a record number of women running for political office at home and abroad, women leading activism across a range of issues. And the biggest single day protest in US history was against Donald Trump's statements about women. While there have been great strides made towards gender equality, still the playing field is not level. We're almost six months into this new decade and in the middle of a pandemic. There is growing abuse of female politicians online, the continuation of the gender pay gap and women being disproportionately impacted by austerity, which seems to be only heightened by weakening economies from COVID-19. And now two US presidential candidates, both with complicated and damaged histories on how they treat women. First, Brian, I think we should go into the lay of the land here. The current commander in chief, Donald Trump, more than 25 women have accused him of sexual misconduct. Before that, though, and before even the Me Too movement, which sparked renewed attention to these accusations, there was the Access Hollywood tape in October 2016, which set this off. I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the... So even before that Access Hollywood tape there, that infamous clips that have now been played so often, we know that at least 25 women have now made sexual misconduct allegations against Donald Trump since the 1970s. Those accusations have ranged from ogling, sexual harassment, groping and even rape. Now, he has denied all of these allegations. He says they are fabricated, they're politically motivated and he's claimed some of the women were even paid money to make up these lies. He's threatened to sue some of these women and he's even dismissed others by suggesting that they aren't attractive enough for him to be interested in them in the first place. Many of the allegations had surfaced prior to the 2016 election and some even during the campaign but it still didn't damage his bid for the White House and this is something that has been frequently used by his spokespeople as a sort of a defense. In 2017, for example, the then White House press secretary said, The president has addressed uh, these accusations directly and denied all of these allegations. And this took place long before he was elected to be president. And the people of this country had a decisive uh, election, supported President Trump. 
and we feel like these allegations have been answered. That's what Sarah Huckabee Sanders said at the time. Since then, though, Brian, there's been a lot of focus on the way he speaks to women. Yeah, so... Donald Trump has a certain way of speaking to women, particularly when it comes to women reporters. And I cover his press conferences all the time. And there's a certain tone, I think, when it comes to Mm. female reporters. He clashes with all the reporters from the mainstream media, as we know. But there's a different language and a different tone, I think, when it comes to some of the female reporters in the room. He tells them to take it easy and be nice and calm down, those kind of words. Cutting off or banning China from coming in. Chinese nationals. But by the way, not Americans who are also nice from China. Nice and easy. Just relax. She's shocked that I picked her. No. She's like in a state of shock. I'm not thinking, Mr. That's President. That's okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. I'm sorry? No, go ahead. And of course, the biggest clashes that we've seen between Donald Trump and a high-profile woman are the clashes between him and the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Now, I am the father of two young children, and oftentimes they will come to me saying that they've had this huge row and each one will blame the other for starting it. And I often say to them, look, you're both at fault here. And I'm going to put this out there. I think when it comes to the Nancy Pelosi-Donald Trump rows, many's the time they are both at fault. Yes, Donald Trump has said appalling things about lots of people. And in particular, he said some appalling things about women. But Nancy Pelosi is not blameless here, Jackie. She tore up the State of the Union address speech in front of him after he delivered that speech in Congress earlier this year. Earlier, he had refused to shake his hand, to shake her hand rather. But at the end of it all, she tore up the speech. And then we had more insults traded last week. Nancy Pelosi described Donald Trump as morbidly obese. He came back and said that she was a waste of time, sick and someone who had mental problems. I think our RT colleague Louise McSharry made the point during the week about those comments from Nancy Pelosi. How, you know, Nancy Pelosi, she was trying to be funny and rile the president, but she did more damage than anything. And Louise said in in a tweet, quote, things are hard enough as it is. I don't need a reminder that many people I respect don't respect me because of what my body looks like. Bodies are not an indicator of how smart, capable or kind a person is. If you think they are, you have some work to do, unquote. And many joined that chorus that Nancy Pelosi should have criticised the president on how he was handling the pandemic rather than the way he looks, suggesting that she had stooped to his level. But that's another topic for another day. But I think it's worth mentioning. And If we turn to the probable Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, there has been well-documented incidents of uh, women coming forward to describe their discomfort with the former vice president's overly familiar touching, including him rubbing their shoulders and whispering in their ears. And one of those women was Tara Reid, who claimed that his behaviour, like touching her shoulders, made her feel uncomfortable. And a more serious allegation from her has been hitting the headlines in recent months. Yeah, so just to take everybody back, Tara Reid worked as a staff assistant to Joe Biden between 1992 and 1993 when he was a senator. She alleges that in 1993, Joe Biden pinned her against a wall and sexually assaulted her. Joe Biden has denied these allegations. He insisted that it never happened. Now, there have been some questions raised about these allegations. There are some inconsistencies in the story. The story has changed over time. There appears to be a difficulty in tracking down records or much further proof or evidence. Also, in recent media coverage of Tara Reid, they've uncovered a lot of instances where she has praised Joe Biden. Look, all of these things 
don't take from the fact that she absolutely has to be listened to. She absolutely has to be investigated when she makes these allegations to establish whether or not they are credible. But I think in this case, for some Democrats, there was a rush to judgment, a rush to discounter and a rush to side with Joe Biden very early on, perhaps even before some of the question marks began to be raised about these allegations. And that led, Jackie, to accusations of hypocrisy from Republicans and from conservative media commentators. And they compared the reaction of Democrats to, you'll recall, the confirmation hearings of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, how Democrats criticized Republicans for, you know, siding with the justice and discounting the allegations of his accuser. And then Republicans saying, well, you're being guilty of a bit of hypocrisy here, Democrats, because you are very quick to side with your candidate and to discount the accusations that are being made. Uh, Joe Biden has faced scrutiny from own members of his party um, in the decades gone by. His support for the Hyde Amendment, which bars federal funding for most termination of pregnancies, but also the Anita Hill scenario, which he has expressed regret over. He has, yeah. And this all stems back to 1991 when Joe Biden was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So he was in charge of the confirmation hearing for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Anita Hill was a young woman who had accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. Now, Joe Biden, as the chairman of this committee, has been very much criticised for his handling of the hearings and for not doing more to protect her and to defend her when she gave her testimony. It is appropriate to ask Professor Hill Anything any member wishes to ask her to plumb the depths of her credibility. Can you tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged? And yes, to this day, he still speaks about this and still says it is a moment of great regret in his life. And he wish he had handled that entire process a lot, lot differently. I think we should call Tony now because it'll be... Really interesting to hear what she has to say about all of this. Absolutely. Give her a call. Okay, I think she is on Skype. So let me just message her and see if she's there. Hopefully this works. Tony is typing. Tony is still typing. I'm there. I'm good. Hi, Tony. It's Jackie. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Tony, thanks so much for doing this um, for us. If I could get you first, um, just tell me where in the world you are, just to test the levels to make sure we are okay, all good. I'm, I'm in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, outside of the city of Washington, D.C. Um, I, I'm, I'm in D.C., Tony, and it's pouring rain at the moment, so I'm sure it's pouring rain in Silver Spring as well, is it? It is. It's like it's the sun nice. never shines it's here. It's bizarre. Oh, we've got like bad, bad May. It's been cold and wet. It's been like Ireland. Yeah, I was like just going to say, Brian, May. it's like you've never left Ireland if it's raining all the time. Whereas you guys yeah. have had really nice weather in Ireland. Oh, my God. How Irish are we? We've been talking about the weather for the last five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> OK, um, let's get straight to it. Will this all matter? That is the question. One of the largest organisations of feminist grassroots activists in the United States is the National Organisation for Women and its president, Tony Van Pelt, is on the line with us. Tony, thank you so much for joining us on States of Mind. We've been talking a lot about how this election and the candidates and their record of their treatment of women. For you and your organisation, what are the big issues and talking points here as we come closer to Election Day? 
Well, the big issues uh, for us is um, that many women, and especially those who are uh, come from low-income households and racial minorities, face voter suppression in this country in this election. 77% of the healthcare workers in the United States are women. So they're working around the clock. Then there's the issue of they'd have to get off. They have to get to the post. We're all about mail imbalance. We want mail, postal mail imbalance so that people can vote um, when it's most convenient and easiest for them. We know that uh, the current occupant of the White House is calling mail imbalance fraud. You know, it's, it's horrible here. And the controversy over those mail-in ballots is something that we have discussed about before on this podcast. But if I can just turn to Joe Biden, are you happy with the probable candidate that is Joe Biden or is there more for him to do? We have seen him over the years. We worked with him over the years and we have seen him grow. We've seen him come from a place that we're not happy with on more than one issue. And we've worked to educate him and um and he has listened. He's listened not just to us, but to our coalition partners and to the citizens around the country. The Joe Biden of yesterday is not the Joe Biden of today. But as important to us is in either party that the vice president be a, a woman feminist. That's really important to us. We don't endorse anybody unless they are very good on every single one of our core issues, which is this very broad agenda of equality for all. How do you find the handling of accusations of sexual harassment and assault in political office? If we look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she said recently that the public's response to the allegation against Joe Biden, it has gone on the wrong side by looking at the political implications of the accusation. She said, instead of focusing on her account, that's Tara Reid's account, we should have focused on her story as a survivor. And people are fast forwarding to looking at the political implications instead. Would you agree with that? We think it's really important that women are heard, that they feel empowered to stand up and to speak out. And uh, when that happens, that their stories are vetted, that they're you know, their experiences are honored. We we honor her and we're grateful for her for speaking out. And then on the other hand, we think that the stories uh, need to be vetted and, and carried forward. And I think that that's happened. And again, we're concerned, our concern is, is about uh, flipping the three, um, getting three extra seats in the Senate. And that is where we're going. We're not so focused on the presidential election as we are on uh, maintaining the seats that we've earned in the House and on the Senate itself, the Senate side, and about who the vice president pick is. The 2018 midterms were historic for the amount of women candidates and women who eventually won seats in both the Senate and the House. Are you buoyed by that? Are you happy to see that there are more women candidates running for office? Coming at a time, though, however, that... On a country-by-country country basis, the U.S. is still quite low when it comes to the number of women in high office. Yes, but we are very excited about that. This is, you know, a huge issue for the National Organization for Women. You know, I got involved in 1989, and one of the first um, big meetings that I went to, uh, there was a call for all the women in the room to stand up and say that they would run for office. So starting back in 89, we really started out by... 
uh, asking women to run because frequently women said they didn't run because they didn't have the same qualifications they thought as men. And then we talk about how the average white man in Florida, or I'm sorry, in the United States runs uh, on average four times before they take office. And so the commitment to run is a, is a long-term commitment and you're not necessarily going to win the first time out. Although in 2018, we had a lot of people that that one that had never run before. So we're very excited about that. So fast forward, we got women to run. We started to fill the bench in, you know, in our counties, on our school boards, in our states. Um, and then also we have something in now called our feminist field force, where we ask our members from around the country to go into a state that we've targeted. For instance, in 2017, we targeted Virginia. We wanted to flip, not just in the, the federal government, but in the state governments. So we wanted to flip the houses there, and along with our coalition partners, we invited our uh, field force to come to and stay in the homes of our activists in Virginia, and then we provided them with financial assistance to get there and to have rental cars and food when they were there. And so we uh, have people that come into a state that will knock on doors and will volunteer and be in parades and, and hand out flyers and those kinds of things. So we're very active politically. Uh, and we think that these, our strategy and these tactics are very, very helpful for getting our feminist candidates actually elected to office, because after all, that's our goal. Our speed dating of interviews speed, continues. Speed dating is the <laughs> around us, right? So let's uh, speak to somebody from the Republican side of things on all of this. Megan Malloy joins us now, and she is the founder and executive director of Republican Women for Progress. Megan, thanks for joining us. Megan, if we look at Donald Trump as a candidate, as the Republican candidate running for re-election, how do you assess him in terms of his treatment of women, the things he has said about women, and his policies in relation to women? It's difficult, because you, if you look back at, at 2008... The Republican Party put out what they called their autopsy of the party, um, having just lost the presidential election that year. And one of the top items on that was we have to do better with women if we're going to succeed as a party in the future. You know, fast forward to 2016, and I think you could argue that the party is doing extraordinarily worse uh, with women and, and with minorities than they were in 2008. So. Um, as a candidate, I think he was really, really bad with women. He was, he was just being very dismissive. You know, he wasn't trying to elevate women within his campaign, um, even though there were a number of women that, that could have uh, kind of taken on leadership roles uh, as president. You know, I think at some points we were optimistic about some of the policies that would go in place, um, maternity, paternity policies for, for new parents, um, but we haven't seen any of that. So... That's been that's been frustrating. So you are a Republican. He is your candidate. <laughs> will you be voting for him or will you be going down the Joe Biden route or will you just be staying at home? Uh, well, you know, I, I guess I am being the patriotic American that I am. I will uh, indeed be voting the election. And, um, you know, I didn't vote for Donald Trump in, in 2016, even though he was the Republican candidate, because I just had so many concerns about, uh, you know, his character and, and also a lot of um, his policy proposals. And Frankly, I haven't seen any of that change over the last three years. And unless uh, something really remarkable happens between now and November, I'm not sure I'll be able to vote for him this year. 
Uh, I haven't made a decision as to whether or not I'll vote for Joe Biden. I think, you know, there are a lot of things to like about him. But, you know, being a, a fiscal conservative, I think that it's tough to to reconcile that with uh, a lot of what the Democrat Party is doing right now. So I don't know. Check, check back in with me uh, in October and we'll, we'll see what we've decided on. It sounds like it's difficult to be a Republican woman. And I suppose a separate question to that is it must be difficult to be a Republican woman who also criticizes Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's very, well, not very easy, but it's certainly easier to be a woman in the Democratic Party because there are just some of the, so, so many institutions that have been supporting women as candidates or just as kind of, um, you know, political activists forever. You think about groups like Emily's List and um, the Republican Party just hasn't had that and, and doesn't have that. Uh, and, you know, that was a lot of our thinking when we started uh, Republican Women for Progress is we wanted to be that vehicle within the Republican Party that could support women and tell them that you do have a place within this party. And if you want to run for office, you're going to have support. Um, so it is tough. You know, I think not only because they, there aren't these institutions in place, but I think there's such a stigma. Uh, you know, the Republican Party, especially now, is controlled by a bunch of middle-aged white men. And so when you don't see someone that looks like you, does that really inspire you to go <laughs> run and join that party? Probably not. You know, not to mention, I think, as, as you've probably seen with Donald Trump and some of his followers, um, they make it very easy to kind of bully women, whether that's online or in person or whatever. Have you had much um, of that bullying no, online? No, for sure, yeah. <laughs> as soon as you say any negative thing about... Uh, then candidate now president, you just get, you know, a, an army of his loyal followers that will call you every name in the book. And it's, it's, it's things that are specific to women, you know, they're not telling men, they're not commenting on men's appearances and then calling men these, uh, you know, kind of words that refer to parts of their anatomy, but they are calling women those things. You mentioned the perception that might be out there that the Republican Party is still this party of the white male. How do you change that? I know in Ireland, for example, we have gender quotas where political parties will get funding if they run a certain percentage of female candidates. Is that something you think that should be looked at in the US? But I am aware it is a, a controversial topic as well, the whole issue <laughs> of gender quotas, and many people are not in favour of it. You know, I think it's really a cyclical thing. Right now, I think we have 13 Republican women uh, elected to Congress, which uh, out of 435 members, which, uh, you know, I think there are probably more members of Congress named John, period, than there are women. Um, and that's not good. And I think in large part that is due to the lack of these um, institutions and groups uh, that I was talking about earlier that the Democrat Party has had. We, as a result of that, also don't have a lot of women for maybe new candidates or women that are new to politics to really look up to. You know, the Democrats have Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton and so many of these women that have, have been in kind of the highest of the high of their profession. And so they can serve as role models and, and recruiters. And the Republican Party, we, you know, we've got like a Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, but they're, they're not, you know, kind of in, in the, the top of their positions. And, and I don't think that that's, uh, you know, really inspiring a lot of young Republican women to be involved. So it's, I think it takes time. You've kind of got to start at the bottom and, you know, work um, at recruiting women at all levels.
where does this all go from here? The allegations, the words, the records, how does that translate on polling day? Kelly Dittmar, newly appointed Director of Research at the Centre for American Women and Politics, joins us on States of Mind now. Kelly, while the women's vote is not monolithic, it's interesting to look at its impact and the trends. Do allegations of sexual misconduct, do they influence voters' behaviour in women and in men? Some of the conclusions there are that, one, you see pretty stark partisan differences. So unfortunately, these issues have become partisan, in part because, especially in 2016, uh, the allegations were primarily on the Republican side. So it wasn't just Donald Trump, but you had a a number of other Republican male candidates who are facing other types of allegations. And so a lot of the polling around these issues has also fallen down along party lines where you see Republican voters in the U.S. uh, more likely to think that sexual harassment and even some issues around sexual assault might be, or allegations around sexual assault, uh, might be misunderstandings between individuals instead of evidence of larger systemic problems around gender inequality. And when it comes to Republican women voters in particular, again, you see these differences that their support in particular for Donald Trump was actually tied to levels of what we would call hostile sexism. So the idea that, you know, feminism has gone too far um, and also um, a denial of gender discrimination. So a perception that this reality actually doesn't exist, you know, that women are actually doing quite well. So going into this cycle, the question is for Democratic voters and Democratic women in particular, for whom these issues seem to be more important, uh, will allegations against Joe Biden or other Democratic candidates be disqualifying enough um, in their vote choice. We spoke earlier in the podcast about the Tara Reid allegations and we made brief reference to them there as well. And we, you know, there are questions about those allegations. There are questions about what has been said there. But you spoke about the divide between Republicans and Democrats. Many would say there was a similarity early on in the Tara Reid allegation in this rush to believe Joe Biden and discount her. And many Republicans and conservatives came out and accused the Democrats of hypocrisy, saying this is exactly what you accused us of doing with Brett Kavanaugh, not listening to the accuser, jumping to the side of the person who is being accused. Initially in the Tara Reid allegations, did we see perhaps a coming together of Republicans and Democrats? And maybe they weren't that different after all. Yeah, I mean, I think in this context, uh, I don't know if we can ever say they're coming together, but I see your point. Um, I think in this case, really, the, the Republicans were using this as a, as a point of hypocrisy. And, and we should go back a bit to um, or around the Kavanaugh allegations. If you recall, we also had um, allegations on the Democratic side against Senator Al, Al Franken. And some of the women in particular, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Senator Kamala Harris, who had come out and said, you know, we can't accept this type of behavior. He should step down. Uh, were really ridiculed on the Democratic side because there was a perception that his behavior wasn't bad enough, that there wasn't due process. Um, and at the time, and since then, Senator Gillibrand said, you know, we have to be equally uh, hard on, you know, and sort of draw the line uh, on our friends and those in our party as we do in the Republican Party. So I think you saw that conversation sort of come 
back full rounds when those allegations first came out against Joe Biden. And it was a moment where the, the party and the partisans had to make sure that they were holding their own candidate to the same standards that they were holding Republican candidates. Now, that's where I think you can actually get into some differences. And I think the Republican accusations um, of complete hypocrisy are probably unfair because there were many on the Democratic side who were worried about these allegations against Joe Biden and were calling for investigations and were supportive of, you know, Tara Reid being able to tell her story. The question then becomes, was there enough of a due process? Has there been enough of a due process um, in order to now say more definitively among some of these Democratic supporters, you know, I've listened to her story. She's been able to put it out there and I still believe Joe Biden and therefore can move forward with supporting him. Um, the Republicans will certainly say that that hasn't happened um, and the Democrats will say that has happened and also will note that the allegations are far different and uh, than they have been against Donald Trump. With all this negativity, can we be positively negative, Brian, a bit like Donald Trump? That's going to be my new mantra, I think. I'm positively negative. Or you could be negatively positive, I guess, depending on what mood you're in. So people don't know what we're talking about. Donald Trump last week had the most bizarre interaction with journalists where all the time now he is asked about his own personal health, coronavirus, taking a drug, hydroxychloroquine. Then he's constantly asked about his own health and he constantly likes to say that he is tested regularly for COVID-19 and tests negatively, which is what he tried to say during a briefing with journalists last week, but it came out a little bit confused on the positive-negative front. And I tested very positively in a in another sense. So this morning, yeah, I tested positively toward negative, right? I think it's the perfect summary for a journalist. We're positively negative all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> we come to, come down in the middle. We don't want to be we don't be biased one way or the other. We can be positively negative and negatively positive. Anyways, chat to you next week, Brian. Looking forward to it. Chat to you next week. Thanks, Jackie. Bye bye. <laughs>